RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 28, Kosminski was the suspect. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and joining me on the show today from Boston, Massachusetts, is the author and researcher Robert House. Also joining the show today from Maidstone, Kent in the UK, is Paul Begg. He's the author of The Uncensored Facts and Jack the Ripper, The Definitive History, as well as co-editor of the Jack the Ripper A to Z. From Ramsgate, Kent in the UK, we have Chris Scott, who is the author of Will the Real Mary Kelly, as well as a researcher extraordinaire. And we have Robert McLaughlin from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, who is the author of the first Jack the Ripper victim photographs. And last but not least, the former moderator from the website casebook.org, Ali Ryder. Uh, I thank you all for being on the show today. Our subject is going to be the suspect Kosminski, who was first named as a suspect in 1894, suggested in uh, by Melville McNaughton in the McNaughton Memoranda. The McNaughton Memoranda, which was written on the 23rd of February, 1894, states that no one ever saw the Whitechapel murder or many homicidal maniacs were suspected, but no shadow of proof could be thrown on anyone. I may mention the cases of three men, any one of whom could be more likely than Cutbush, which is Thomas Cutbush, to have committed the series of murders. In number two, he names Kosminski. No first name. He states, a Polish Jew and resident of Whitechapel. This man became insane, owing to many years' indulgence in solitary vices. He had a great hatred of women, especially of the prostitute class, and strong homicidal tendencies. He was removed to a lunatic asylum about March 1889. There are many circumstances connected with this man who made him a strong suspect. Now, after the McNaughton Memoranda, he, Kosminski, seemingly became the subject of other comments by other police officials, in particular Robert Anderson, who describes someone who resembles the Kosminski from the McNaughton Memoranda. Uh, Rob House what are your views on what the police officials knew of Kosminski and and how do you kind of reconcile what researchers have discovered about Kosminski with what the police officials wrote about him at the time that he was first uh, that his name was first brought to light well i think that uh, it's not clear obviously what the police knew about Aaron Kosminski exactly um, because they they obviously must have known more than we know about him now. Um, this is alluded to in the McNaughton Memorandum, where he says that Kosminski had s- homicidal tendencies, great hatred of women. But, you know, there is, n- there is nothing documented aside from Mac- uh, McNaughton's statement that supports this. So they must have, I would assume, interviewed probably Kosminski, uh, possibly talked to his, you know, I'm sure they talked to his family as well. And I feel like largely what I've been doing is trying to, um, you know, further ex- further explain uh, these statements by McNaughton, Anderson, Swanson, um, you know, backing, backing those statements up with additional, uh, you know, research and documentation on Aaron Kosminski. Uh, some of which was not known before. And in certain cases, you know, the documents back up largely what uh, Swanson said and what, you know, McNaughton and Anderson said. And in other cases, they don't. 
you know, there are problems with with these documents, obviously. You know, most notably, for example, as Swanson said, Kosminski died shortly after he was admitted to the asylum, when we know that that's not true. Um, there are other problems with later documents that seem to be referring to a suspect that is, uh, you know, quite possibly Aaron Kosminski. For example, uh, Robert Sager, who is a city detective, uh, spoke about a suspect uh, that he claims was admitted to a private asylum. It's not known whether that is true, although we know that Kosminski was admitted to Colney Hatch, which would not be described as a private asylum. So in that case, either Sager was incorrect or, you know, there's a gap in our knowledge about Aaron Kosminski. And, you know, it's possible he was admitted to a private asylum at some point uh, that we just don't know about. You know, so that's an example of, um, you know, the type of problems that you see in, in references to, you know, a suspect that may have been Aaron Kosminski. Part of the problem really is that it's very difficult to determine what sources are actually referring to Aaron Kosminski uh, at all. You know, we have, for example, an article uh, by Harry Cox, who is another city detective, that refers to a suspect that could very well be Aaron Kosminski, but, you know, he doesn't, of course, name the suspect. And Sager also doesn't name the suspect. Probably the suspect wasn't named for the same reason that Anderson didn't name him, which is that, uh, you know, he said that the, uh, can't remember the exact quote, the, uh, the reputation of our uh, department would suffer, you know, something like that. You know, so basically what he's saying is that the police were not really supposed to talk about, you know, I guess specific aspects of the case publicly. Just determining which sources are actually referencing Kosminski is somewhat difficult. But I, you know, I talk about a number of these sources in uh, the book, and I can go over, you know, them in detail. Uh, hi, Rob. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about uh, Kosminski's background. Uh, where he came from, when he arrived in England, all of that time, you know, leading up until uh, the crucial time between 1881, 18, 1888, 1891, you know. Yep, sure. Uh, so Aaron Kosminski was born in a town called Quadova, which was in, uh, well, it was in Poland, but at the time it was in, uh, you know, Poland didn't actually exist, and Quadova was in the westernmost uh, part of Russia. It was really very close to the German border. In fact, I think it was, it was probably within about 15 miles of the German border. Quadova was in what was called the Pale of Settlement, which was a region created uh, sometime around the end of the 18th century. And Jews were essentially you know, largely forced to live in this area. Kosminski the, probably lived in the Jewish section of town, which was called Jedevici. The total number of Jewish residents in Cordova was about 600 in the 1860s, you know, which is around the time when Aaron was born. So he was born in 1865. Uh, his father was a tailor named Abram Joseph Kosminski. He had a number of siblings... He had a total of uh, six brothers and sisters. 
Uh, he had two brothers. One was named Isaac. The other was named Wolf. And he had four sisters, Hessa, Hinda, Malka, who later changed her name and uh, was known as Matilda in England. And he had another sister named Blimba. The only one of those that we know came to London is Matilda. Uh, there's some evidence to suggest that his other sisters may have gone to America. So, you know, Cordova was largely a, you know, a typical small town. And, you know, there was a great amount of anti-Semitism, really, in Russia at the time. You know, largely based on the fact that Jews were seen as a you know, an alien, sort of foreign um, group. You know, they were kind of uh, blamed for being, you know, revolutionaries or, uh, you know, kind of anti, anti-Zarist element. So, you know, there was, there was essentially emigration from Russia throughout the 1870s, but it really picked up after the assassination of the Tsar in 1881, um, there was one um, person involved in the sort of plot to assassinate the Tsar who was Jewish, uh, but this person uh, was, you know, not one of the main participants, really. Uh, but, you know, in any case, the Jews were largely blamed for the, the assassination. And the son of uh, Alexander II, who was assassinated, you know, kind of kind of suggested that the Jews were responsible for the murder of his father and, you know, there was some suggestion that he kind of uh, encouraged the Russian peasants to attack the Jews in retaliation for this assassination. Uh, so pogroms broke out in the southwestern portion of uh, Russia and, you know, there were a number of pogroms uh, following the assassination. So this would have been in March 1881, April 1881. Uh, Kosminski's town, Quadova, uh, there's no evidence really to suggest that there actually were pogroms there. Uh, there had been uh, a large anti-Jewish riot in a town nearby, which is called Kalich, in 1878, but... Uh, you know, it was really just the anti-Semitic environment that caused this uh, large wave of post-Jewish um, emigration. Uh, most of those probably ended up in the United States, but, uh, you know, a large portion ended up in London. So the Kosminski family left, well, Aaron's older brother Isaac actually left Cordova in 1871, and settled in the East End. Three years after that, Aaron's father died, and his death certificate says that he left after him his widowed wife, Golda, and three children. And that probably means three children that were living in the home, in other words, that were, you know, young, unmarried. And so those would probably have been Aaron Wolf, who at the time was uh, 14. Aaron would have been eight. And his sister Blimba, who was, let's see, she would have been 15. You know, from that we can assume that Matilda was probably already married. And she married her cousin, Morris Lubnowski. 
you know, nothing is really known exactly about when Aaron left Cordoba, but it was probably around May uh, 1881, which was the time when Wolf was married in a nearby town called Colo. They arrived in London around June 1881. And the assumption is that, uh, well, we know that Wolf arrived at that time anyway, but the assumption is that Aaron uh, came with him at that time. And then, you know, for the next decade, really, nothing, nothing is known about Aaron Kosminski at all. And we're left to sort of piece together what his life was like in that decade from, from what we know about his family members, you know, and what was written about him later in his asylum records and his uh, admission to uh, the workhouse. And um, when the, the Kosminskis arrived in London, did they, did they move to Golston Street? No, no, no. The Kosminski family, they all lived in this area that was south of Fieldgate Street, which is near the, uh, the old Bell Foundry. Mainly they lived on Greenfield Street, but, you know, they moved around quite a bit. For a number of years, they were living in different addresses, but by 1888... Isaac was living at 74 Greenfield Street. Uh, Wolf, Wolf's, Wolf's address is actually unknown in 1888, but prior to that, he'd been living at, also on Greenfield Street, but then he disappears, and in 1888, we don't know where Wolf is living. Uh, in 1889, he's living in Yalford Street, which is a very small street that's parallel to Greenfield Street. And then by 1890, Wolf was living at Science Square, which is the address uh, that's given uh, when Aaron's, you know, on his uh, workhouse records. So where exactly Aaron was living during the murders is not known, but it's probable that he was living on Greenfield Street. And uh, my, my theory basically is that he may have been living in um, Isaac's workshop. Isaac was a, was a master tailor. He had a workshop behind his house. Uh, he shows up in Booth's survey of uh, tailors, which was conducted right around the time of the murders. And Isaac is listed as a ladies tailor. Uh, he had 14 employees and, you know, he made a good deal of money in the busy seasons of the year. But the, the tailoring industry was subject to fluctuation, and so, you know, he, he would have made considerably less money probably in the off-season. Uh, but in any case, he had, a, uh, he had a workshop behind the house. Directly across from Wolf's address was 16 Greenfield Street, where Aaron's sister, Matilda, was living with, uh, with her husband, Morris, who was a bootmaker. Interestingly, they both moved, both Isaac and uh, Matilda and Morris moved from these addresses, you know, right around the time that Aaron was admitted to Colney Hatch. Morris moved, I believe, around, uh, well, it's not known exactly, but sometime around March. Isaac moved uh, shortly thereafter. You say, interestingly, they moved around the same time he was admitted as if this suggests something to you. What precisely does this suggest to you? Well, the Swanson marginalia and uh, Anderson's writings make it, you know, suggest that Kosminski's house was under 
under surveillance. Swanson says that his house was watched by city CID, which are, you know, city detectives. It's not known exactly what time this took place, but, you know, Swanson says this took place after the attempted identification of Aaron Kosminski by a witness. So, you know, it's not, it's not known exactly when the surveillance took place, but, uh, you know, it probably would have been in 1890, possibly late 1890, you know, shortly before he was admitted to Colney Hatch in February 1891. Uh, so, you know, it's possible that other residents of the street sort of picked up on, on the fact that the house was under surveillance, uh, may have known that Aaron was a suspect in the case, and the family may have moved uh, just to, you know, sort of distance themselves from... Uh, scrutiny by the public really but you know that's just a suggestion but you know it's in, it is interesting that they both moved from the from greenfield street around the same time um now i also you said that swanson said that kosminski was under surveillance that's it, uh, do you want to clarify that a little bit because as far as i'm i'm aware and i could be completely off on this i fully admit that up front um wasn't it just there was an identification at the seaside home but there wasn't necessarily a direct correlation between kosminski that's an, a, a presumption an assumption that we're making to proceed with the idea that kosminski was the ripper it's not necessarily known about the seaside home identification and kosminski well as swanson's exact quote is that uh he had been identified at the seaside home uh, he knew he was identified, and then on suspect's return to his brother's house in Whitechapel, he was watched by police, city CID, by day and night. And then Swanson says, in a very short time, the suspect, with his hands tied behind his back, was sent to Stepney Workhouse and then to Colney Hatch, and died shortly afterwards. Uh, so, you know, Swanson very clearly says that he was watched by police. And, you know, I think it's interesting that this is essentially corroborated by statements, possibly, like I said before, of both uh, Robert Sager and Harry Cox, who are both city detectives, who both wrote about uh, surveillance on a suspect in the case that they thought was a very strong suspect. Um, Sager was the one who had said that the person in question was removed to a private asylum, correct? Yeah, that's right. All right. Yes. Can I ask a question? Hi, Rob. It's really good to speak to you. Um, this business about moving and you know possible ramifications about um, Aaron's incarceration. Um, what's known for sure, uh, either date-wise or not reason-wise, because I mean that's conjecture, about the family sort of abandoning the name and assuming the name Abrahams. The entire family apparently changed their name to Abrahams, you know, pretty much immediately on arrival in London. Right. Uh, Isaac was known as Isaac Abrams, you know, pretty soon after he arrived in, in 1871. And it looks like the rest of the family just followed suit when they arrived in 1881. They're really referred to as Abrams in, in every single document uh, except for... The, uh, the asylum admissions, where Wolf is referred to as Wolf Kosminski, 
and Aaron is referred to as Aaron Kosminski. You know, I think it, it's an interesting thought that Aaron may well have, you know, called himself Aaron Abrams also. It sounds like he went probably by both names. Yeah, the reason I asked was because that um, the 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 fact that the dog muzzling case because the 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 the, the two names w- was an issue there, wasn't it? It was actually mentioned. Yeah, it looks like Aaron gave the name. Uh, well, it's hard to say really, but he he may well have given the name Kosminski, and then he was charged with giving a false name essentially, mm. and his brother mm. had to explain that. Um, you know they they went by the name Ab- you know they they went by the name Abrams as Aaron says because Kosminski is hard to spell. Yeah, but I don't think that uh, the you know I, it's clear that the name change had nothing you know there's nothing suspicious about no, that really. It was predates very, the murder. Yeah, is there is there any indication as to when the mother came over? Because I've, I've, as far as I know, she's only ever been found listed in 1901. You know, I've done I've done a lot of this research with Chris Phillips who. Um, you know, Chris has done an enormous amount of research into Aaron Kosminski, and uh, we've been in touch with uh, some of the descendants of his brothers and sisters. And one of them said that at some point, Morris went back to Poland to get his mother. Uh, his mother was Leah, Leah, later known as Leah Cohen. And, uh, you know, I suspect that Golda may have come over at the same time. Uh, although I'm having trouble finding exactly a date on that. Have you, have you found out uh, roughly when she would have been widowed? When did, when did the dad die? When did Aaron's father die? Yeah. He died in 1874. Right. And I had hoped uh, that his death certificate would contain, you know, would indicate the cause of death, but it doesn't. Uh, mm. You know, af- after the time he died, I, I assume... You know, well, we have Aaron living in, um, well, you know, it's difficult to say where they would have lived. They may have moved in with relatives, for example, because I don't know who would have been considered the breadwinner of the family at that time. Wolf was only 14. Uh, Isaac had already left the country, so, um, you know, and Aaron was much younger. So the only siblings left were Aaron's sisters, really, who were a bit older, but Matilda had probably already, well... I guess she wouldn't have married by that time, but did that answer your question at all? I was a bit confused. Yes, definitely. Definitely, we we, we have, as far as I know, we have uh, we have absolutely no um, indication of any prospective employer. I mean, we 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 have no idea of where during his time here uh, Aaron would have worked, do we? Uh, No, there's. I found nothing nothing uh, about where Aaron worked. You know, he he's listed as a hairdresser on his asylum record, uh, and this Jacob Cohen uh, claimed that he hadn't worked for years at the time he was certified as insane. Is that the Cohen from Castle Lane? It's not Castle Lane, it's uh, Carter Lane. Castle Lane, that's right. Yeah, this is the Cohen who um, was a business partner of Wolf Abrams' You know, in a very brief, you know, a very brief-lived uh, sort of business venture, uh, they were mantle manufacturers, I believe, in 1891. And uh, but who exactly Jacob Cohen is is still not clear. I had, you know, sort of uh, been thinking he was possibly a relative of, uh, you know, possibly a cousin 
he might have been related to Morris, for example. But as yet, I've found no evidence of that. But it's interesting that Jacob is the person who, you know, essentially gives information to uh, Huchin, who was the man who certified Aaron is insane. Uh, so Cohen must have known Aaron, you know, pretty intimately, you know, pretty well. Uh, but exactly why he was the person who testified to Cohen is not clear. Uh, you know, it's possible Aaron lived with Jacob Cohen or something like that, but I, I don't know. As far as the uh, identification at the seaside home, uh, who, who do you believe the witness was? Well, this is one of those highly debated aspects of uh, the Ripper case. I don't particularly have any strong feelings one way or the other, but I think it was either uh, Joseph Lowend, who was a witness at the murder of Kate Eddowes, or uh, Israel Schwartz. You know, this, this particular aspect of the case is highly debated, and I think Paul... Uh, thinks it was Schwartz. Uh, Stuart Evans at one point argued for Joseph Lowend. You know, I think it could have been either of them, really. I, I tend to lean towards Joseph Lowend myself, but I don't really know. How good, if any, of physical, dis- I mean, from um, asylum records and such, because I know the Stepney work at... How good, how good a physical description do we have of Aaron? Uh, <clears throat> I don't think there's really much of any physical description of Aaron at all. What we know about him, as far as like his build, comes from uh, you know much later asylum records when Aaron was at Leavesden. Uh, you know when he's listed as being very you know he doesn't weigh very much. I think he weighed at the time of his death under a hundred pounds. I don't really think that that gives any indication necessarily of what Aaron's build was. You know, for example, the Harry Cox account of a suspect that he was watching gives a description of that suspect. And so if that is indeed Aaron Kosminski, then there would be a description there. Uh, let me just see if I can find that. He has him as five feet, six inches tall with short black curly hair. Right. And I, and I believe that's all that Cox refers to him as. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about the, uh, Harry Cox account is that Cox refers to, you know, a suspect who is under police surveillance. He says soon after the murder, the last murder, uh, you know, which would be sometime around November, December, 1888. Uh, but it seems clear that, uh, well, Cox basically says that the police were using a cover story which was that they were factory inspectors uh, looking out for tailors and cap makers who were uh, employing underage workers. And he says, pointing out the evils accruing from the sweaters system. Uh, You know, to me, that's very interesting because it seems to suggest that they must have been watching, uh, you know, really a tailor workshop or a cap maker workshop. You know, and and uh, we know, of course, that Isaac Abrams was a tailor who had a workshop, and he's also referred to as a sweater in the booth surveys. Uh, Cox also says that 
they had the use of a house opposite the shop of the man we suspected. Uh, you know, that also is interesting because Matilda was living directly across the street from Isaac's workshop. So, you know, I don't know if I would go as far as to suggest that the police were using Matilda's, uh, you know, house as a sort of base for their surveillance. But um, it's interesting in any case that they say they were using a house opposite the shop. And he also, Cox also said that, the, you know, he refers to the Jews in the street who became, uh, became alarmed at our presence, uh, you know, and gives that as the reason why they had to use this cover story that they were factory inspectors. Uh, this all ties in very nicely with the fact that the booth surveys were going on at that time. Uh, the, the booth survey on Greenfield Street, in fact, I believe may have, may have been um, conducted around October 1888, although, you know, that's not certain. Can I just introduce a, a quick note here, Jonathan? Sure. Um, I think Rob's and Chris Phillips's research is absolutely phenomenal. I've been following it. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's opened up whole areas. But, but I think certainly for anybody not that conversant with the case, I think it's very important to mention Martin Fido. I think it's important to mention Martin because um, both of the um, senior police sources that named Kosminski only give a surname. And it was, um, it was Martin's work uh, which actually... Identify, put a Christian name to it. Um, and also, I think we have to remember that this was pre-internet days, so it literally was a labour of going through records manually, um, which led to Martin's book. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's important to mention his role in the development of, of Kosminski as a suspect. Right, I, I agree. My question regards this investigation, which is basically linked to um, the Swanson information, and I will just go ahead and go on record and say that I'm someone who has grave doubts about the Swanson marginalia. Uh, Not so much that I consider it a forgery or whatever, but we are talking about a man who is writing decades after the fact um, about a case that was not solved, and I do find it somewhat mm, convenient that Kosminski's name was tacked on at the end of the marginalia at a different time in a, in a later pencil. And I'm not saying it wasn't Swanson himself who did that. I'm just saying maybe there was a little bit of that temptation to uh, take more credit than possibly, he, you know, oh, I knew who it was and it, it was solved, but it wasn't quote unquote solved. So I am going to go on record and say that I view everything taken from the Swanson marginalia with just a grain of doubt. Uh, so when we're talking about the whole identification at the seaside home and all of those kinds of, of aspects that go along with Kosminski being identified, well, I believe, and I could be wrong here, and please someone um, let me know if I'm mistaken, but didn't Stuart Evans write something about how when a suspect was in custody um, under mental health uh purview, it would have been impossible for an identification like uh, Swanson had like had been described to actually have occurred. And I believe he, he, as a police officer, a former police officer, he said that there was no way that um, such an identification could have occurred under the rules. And so there was some doubt as to whether this, the, the seaside identification ever actually had occurred. 
And then, of course, there is that whole doubt as to whether it was actually Kazminsky at all. But I was just wondering if, if Rob could address that, because I do know there was a question raised about whether it ever actually would have happened like had been written that it had. Uh, you know, I, I personally don't really spend a lot of time thinking about whether or not the identification happened. I guess, uh, you know, I just sort of assume that it did. I was hoping Paul would answer that question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, but, I, I mean, I will try to if you want. Yeah, go for it. Well, it's 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 simply that when you have a source like Swanson, despite what has been said about it, um, as Martin Fider has pointed out, the provenance is impeccable. There is no real reason to suppose that that document was written by anybody other than Swanson. And my oh, understanding. No, I'm not questioning whether it was written by Swanson. I'm just saying, you know, and I am not saying anything bad about cops. My father was a cop, and I know cops very well, and I know they have a tendency. I mean, you know, people say, oh, well, he was, he was, you know, police officer, and, and you know, obviously we must take everything he says as gospel. Well, sorry, honey, I know too way too many cops to take anything they say as gospel. And when, the, when you've got some distance, some decades from a crime the stories tend to get broader in the telling and the details tend to get uh, uh, more rich, more colorful details tend to emerge. And we are talking about if it was Swanson himself, which I'm not saying it wasn't who wrote this. I'm just saying, I don't necessarily, even if it was 100% him, I am not necessarily saying that I'm willing to take it as gospel truth. And the question that I did have was, is I thought Stuart had written something, and I'm actually looking for it as we speak now, um, that said something along the lines of that it would have been improper procedure that once a, um, a, a patient had been admitted to an asylum, it would have been beyond the bounds for the police to bring in someone uh, okay, I have it. I'm sorry. There is a dissertation on the casebook, and I believe this is written by Stuart Evans. Let me just double-check. Yes, it's by Stuart Evans. It's called Kuzminski and the Seaside Home. But he basically says that once a patient is admitted into um, uh, the, the asylum, that an identification would have been impossible. Um well, to answer that question, what, what basically it, the, the situation is, is that once you've been certified insane, you are then deemed unfit to plead. And if you can't plead, then you can't, generally speaking, you, you can't stand trial. Um, it isn't that there wouldn't have been an identification. I mean, you, could take, you, you can go and identify somebody in an asylum. It, it's just that you can't do anything with the identification when, once it's been done, because... Uh, as I say, the, that the person would uh, would would be deemed unfit to plead. There would be no trial. Uh, if you remember the case of the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, basically that trial degenerated into a, a trial of the the um, uh, the psychiatrists, those who said he was insane, and those who said said that he was sane, and and that all revolved around whether or not uh, he would be sent to Broadmoor and the trial would end, or, or or uh, was, would be deemed sane, and then, then uh, the trial would continue. So there's nothing there particularly to say that this, this incident couldn't have happened, but it certainly wouldn't have happened at the seaside home or anywhere like this because the guy would have been banged away. But uh, the point is, is that the identification, as far as Swanson is concerned, clearly took 
place before any form of committal because the sequence is that there was an identification. Uh, the, the witness apparently refused to give evidence or for whatever reason the suspect had to be released. He was released into the care of his brother where, again, for, for, for baffling and uncertain reasons, he was kept under surveillance uh, 24-hour surveillance by the city CID and was very soon after that committed to an asylum. So the certification of insanity happened after the identification. It is Anderson who suggests that the identification took place after the after Kuzminski had been committed, uh, but that is not in the book edition of uh, of Anderson's memoirs. That was obviously something that he uh, left out of the of the book when when he came to to do that, presumably because he realised it was wrong. Martin Fido, of course, in arguing that it was Cohen, would uh, would say no, it was right, and that uh, the identification took place uh, at some point when Cohen had been committed. But that would certainly explain uh, why uh, the suspect could not be brought to trial because he had been committed. Now, if the family had committed uh, Aaron Kosminski because they knew uh, about the identification and so forth, then what they did was quite clever and effectively put Aaron Kosminski beyond the reach of the law. And that's, that's the simple point there. Did I understand you, Paul, you categorically said that you didn't think the identification could have taken place at the seaside home? No, 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 not, not at all. Um, had What I said was, was that if Kosminski had been uh, committed to, to an asylum uh, mm. prior to the identification taking place, then it's highly unlikely that the identification would at that point have taken place oh, at right. the seaside home. Although, right. having said that, I mean, Swanson does say that he was taken for identification with great difficulty. And Don Rumbelow has said that, as far as he's concerned, the police, in a case as important as the Ripper, would probably have had no difficulty whatsoever in taking anybody wherever they wanted to take them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whether that's true or not, I, I'm not uh, qualified to comment. But, um, no, I mean, it, the... the as strange as it may be, uh, mm. the identification would seem to have taken place at the seaside home. Do you think it's credible that two years after the fact, after the Ripper murders and whatever um, you know devolving state that Aaron Kosminski was in, that it would have still been possible for an exact identification to have occurred when so much time had passed on such a brief... Um, whoever saw... The, the, the quote-unquote ripper could not have seen him for more than a split second in time. I mean, I don't know who made the identification, but obviously it's, you know, it, it's not going to have been like he actually saw the person in the middle of the act. And so do you find that at all suspicious that two years after the fact there was able to be an identification? Anyone open to general? Yes, comment? I mean, I'd, I, I would say that, yes, of, of course, the, the whole story. Uh, is is extremely strange, and there are there are innumerable problems uh, presented by it. But the fact is, is that we, to be honest, we know so little. We have we have no idea what was was factual and what wasn't. And and I think if you if you actually stand back from the, all of this and you look at somebody like Walter Dew, for example, I, I was doing some uh, work on on Emma Smith a little while ago. And Walter Dew tells us all sorts of stuff about Emma Smith. 
about her background, uh, about, about how she, she never spoke about uh, her past to other people and how she was lonely and all of this stuff, which isn't information that would be that comes from any reports or be they newspaper or official reports that we've got. Now, is that stuff true or did he make it up? Now, if it's true, then he's uh, he's giving us new information. But it is also true to say that as far as uh, Dew appears to have been concerned, he thought that Emma Smith had been left unconscious on a pavement where she was found by a man called the police and called a doctor and that she was conveyed from that spot to the London hospital. That is not what happened. He also seems to have thought that she never regained consciousness or at least not sufficiently to, to give an account of what had happened to her uh, to, to, to the doctors or the police or anybody else. So we have this strange situation where Dew appears to know stuff that, that he either made up or, uh, or it's genuine, but at the same time he seems to have been ignorant in, in other respects. The same thing can be applying to, to the Swanson marginalia in, in as much as we, we actually don't know where that, that, um, uh, all that information came from. Was Swanson present? Was, was he recording something secondhand? Uh, we, so we, we, we don't know. And as, as far as the witness himself is concerned, then uh, clearly the witness did for whatever reason, was able to make that identification, assuming that that part of the story is true. Mm. Can I we just jump? We just don't know the answers. Sorry, go on. Um, no, I just wanted to jump in for a second uh, and mention the fact that Swanson uh, states uh, pretty clearly that the witness refused to give evidence because the suspect was also a Jew. And, you know, I think it's very important when you're looking at Kosminski and the whole Polish Jew theory to uh, keep in mind uh, that you have to look at this in the context of, you know, the relations between Jews in the East End and, uh, you know, the sort of English locals uh, was very tense at the time. Uh, you know, I mean, there was a great amount of anti-Semitism uh, do not really only, you know, to to the murders and the fact that a Jew, you know, a Jew is suspected, uh, you know, largely by the public after the after you know the appearance of leather apron on the scene, uh, and also you know, given the fact that uh, Elizabeth Long, for example, said that the person she saw looked like a foreigner, uh, but you know, also there was a great amount of tension due to the fact that, you know, the Jews were competing in the labor market. Uh, they were, they were seen as competing unfairly, uh, you know, largely because of this whole sweating thing and because they were willing to work very cheap. Uh, they, they were packed into, you know, they'd pack a bunch of people into an, um, a house and that was driving up, rental costs in the area. And, you know, I think that given the fact that there was practically, you know, almost a riot against the Jews, uh, you know, around October, um, you know, after the uh, Annie Chapman murder, uh, you know, I think the police were very worried about 
you know, potential explosion of, uh, of violence, really, in the East End. And a witness who was Jewish would have been well aware of the fact that if he went, you know, into trial and said, this guy is, you know, Jack the Ripper, this is the person that I saw, you know, there would have been just an explosion of violence and riots, I think, in the East End. And I think this person may have been well aware of that. And that may have weighed on his decision not to testify, especially, you know, if, as Ali suggests, he maybe wasn't sure of, of, if the person he saw was uh, Kosminski. Well, and see, actually, it, it was actually that precise statement that sort of led me to kind of doubting the overall Swanson story. Uh, the idea that, because one, as because I had written, read before, and Paul just reiterated, you know, the problem is they weren't going to be taking him to trial anyway. So it, I was wondering, well, why would, um, why would, well, you would, know, he, I'm sorry, if he's sorry, already they, in uh, the asylum, if he's, if he's, if he's committed in the asylum, we're not looking at an actual trial. I think the because, point is, uh, I think the point but, is that he, that he wasn't committed at the time he was identified. Isn't that correct? I think you were going to say that, Paul, right? Yes, that's right. I was, I was just going to jump in and, and say that. I think that I think the weight of, of evidence, you, you have one piece of evidence from uh, Anderson, which indicates that the identification took place after committal, but that was only in the serialization of Anderson's autobiography. Mm-hmm. It was not in the, the book or, or the volume mm-hmm. edition. So Anderson changed that. And Swanson is is quite clear that the identification took place before committal. I think I think the last part of that comment, and I'm working from memory here, would also back up what you're saying, Paul, because if I remember rightly, it says that not only uh, did he refuse to give evidence because the suspect was Jewish, but it then goes on to say that he realised that if he were found guilty, he would hang. Well, yes, exactly. And, Which would um, suggest, I mean, if he'd been declared insane and there was no, no going to be, there was going to be no trial, then there wouldn't be any question of that. No, exactly. There, there, there would be, it would have been completely irrelevant. Mm. Um, and I, and I think, even. Uh, even if it that one of the problems that I have, which which has, touches on this, is that by 1891, uh, Aaron Kosminski appeared, or appears from what we've been told, wandering around the streets, picking food out of the gutters, claiming that he knew the movements of everybody and was hearing voices and so on and so forth. Uh, at that point, Aaron Kosminski appears to have been manifestly insane. Mm. Uh, so whether he had been committed or not, it still strikes me as uh, highly improbable to, to anybody looking at him at that time that, that, that he would ever have been executed. But of course, uh, what the, the witness uh, understood to, uh, to be British law or what he thought was likely to happen and, and so on and so forth is a, is a, is a totally different thing from you know, what really would have happened. Well, and also so, like, part of my thing was not only that, you know, the idea that this man said, oh, I, it was him, but I'm not going to testify, and this was the reason given, but was not Aaron Kosminski um, released for a brief period of time after the identification? He didn't go to an asylum and die ever after in the asylum. He was released after the fact, was he not? Yes, he was, but there is absolutely no reason to assume that there was any great interval between the identification and being committed. Uh, he 
Swanson states quite clearly that, that he was returned to his brother's house where he was kept under 24-hour surveillance by the city CID uh, and a very short time later was, or a short while afterwards, was, was committed to Stepney Workhouse, then Colney Hatch, and then he died. Mm. And so, um, the, uh, the police keeping watch over um, him and his brother's house is backed up, uh, or in theory, could be backed up by uh, statements that George Sims had made, um, in which he refers to the Ripper as... Um, being, uh, you know, watched at night, uh, the sole occupant of the premises in Whitechapel and and such. So there, there are other sources. If you want to read um, Kosminski into the suspect that George Sims refers to in his writings, that would seem to back up some of the things that are in the Swanson marginalia. Mm. Yeah, one of the uh, one of one of the aspects of my book is talking about this reference to the sole occupant of certain premises, which always struck me as a sort of a strange phrase to use. Um, sole occupant of certain premises after nightfall. And my basic theory is that fits with, um, you know, the idea of Aaron living in uh, the workshop of Isaac. Uh, there are, there are, I think, a couple other references to that would support that, uh, one of which, as I mentioned before, is Harry Cox, who specifically says they were watching a suspect who was uh, living in a workshop. And the other one is this uh, interview that appeared in the evening news with the landlady on Batty Street, who refers to... Uh, the the man who basically got the blood on his shirt and she refers to him as living on the premises. Uh, it's not really, she doesn't, you know, it's not explicitly state what's meant by living on the premises, but it's clear that she's not referring to, uh, you know, the Batty street house because she explicitly says that uh, the man was one of her lodgers. She says that he was, well, she says that the man who dropped off the shirts was a ladies' tailor who worked for a West End house. And uh, she said that the blood on the shirt was owing to an accident that occurred to a man other than the one taken into custody who was living on the premises. And I think that what's implied there is the premises of the ladies' tailor. Uh, you know, of course, that's subject to interpretation. But it's, it's, you know, when I read that, and I really read this just for the first time a few months ago, uh, it jumped out immediately that the person who dropped off these shirts was a ladies' tailor. And we know that both Aaron's brothers were ladies' tailors. Uh, Wolf was involved, you know, Wolf is described as a mantle maker. Uh, and Isaac is specifically listed as a ladies' tailor in the Booth reports. Uh, there's also an earlier report. Uh, this is in the Daily News on October 18th. And these are all follow-ups to the Batty Street Lodger story, which I think is, you know, it's very clear if you read these newspaper articles that the original, the original story was essentially misreported. And the original story, uh, it's pretty clear, was based on you know, gossiping of this woman's neighbors who claimed that she had a lodger. 
you know, if you read the follow-up articles, it's clear that there never was a lodger at all. This is corroborated by a man who actually was a lodger in the house, whose name is uh, Carl Noun, who says that uh, the police are not in the house, nor has the woman had a lodger who is now missing. I think it's important to to uh, point out that the Batty Street lodger, if you really read these follow-up articles, appears to be a complete myth, basically, but that it was based on, you know, it was based in some fact, and, you know, it seems basically that what happened is a stranger dropped off some bloody shirts or some shirts that when the woman opened them, she found blood on the cuffs. Uh, a, a follow-up to this is printed printed in the Daily News on October 18th that states that, and I'm just going to read this whole thing here, from more than one source, the police authorities have received information tending to show that the criminal is a foreigner who is known as having lived within a radius of a few hundred yards from the scene of the Burner Street tragedy. The very place where he lodges is asserted to be within official cognizance. If the man be the real culprit, he lived some time ago with a woman by whom he has been accused. So, you know, here we have, uh, you know, one source that says the person who dropped off the shirts was a lady's tailor. Another source that says he lived within a radius of a few hundred yards of the scene of the Burner Street tragedy. Uh, so, you know, I opened up Google Maps and measured the exact distance to uh, 74 Greenfield Street from Burner Street, and it's pretty much exactly 300 yards. Um, you know, so these things, th- this uh, Batty Street Lodger story arguably could be, you know, tied to Aaron Kosminski, essentially. When in the past, it, of course, has been tied with uh, Tumble Tea. And so, I mean, right. but... but uh, your theory is very interesting. Now, another um, thing that I, I assume you, you may have been leading into um, is the Crawford letter, which, which some try to tie into Druitt. In fact, on the podcast with um, Stephen Ryder, we discussed the Crawford letter, but, um, but specifically as it possibly pertaining to Druitt. You uh, have other views on, on that. I think one of the more interesting aspects of the Crawford letter is that uh, it says that the bearer of the letter is supposed to be nearly related to the murderer, and she and she is in great fear lest any suspicion should attach to her and place her and her family in peril. Um, you know, I think my personal opinion is that that fits much better with Aaron Kosminski than with, you know, say, Druitt, for example, because, uh, you know, if, for example, uh, the the subject of the Crawford letter was Aaron's sister, Matilda, who he, uh, you know, later, you know, who he at some point apparently threatened to attack with a knife, uh, it it fits very well that she would be uh, you know, in great fear, uh, if if it was revealed that her relative was the murderer, given the uh, you know, given the heightened anti-Semitism and the threat of you know, essentially what would be the same as pogroms occurring in the East End. Uh, 
you know, to a certain extent, arguably, you could say that that's backed up by this um, article in uh, the Echo on October 17th that says that uh, the culprit, you know, if he be the culprit, he lived some time ago with a woman by whom he has been accused. Uh, you know, so this really is open for speculation, obviously, but, uh, how would, you know, how would a poor Jewish, very, very lower class, um, Jewish person have come into contact enough to have a letter of introduction written to her by the Earl of Crawford? I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, I don't really have, I don't really have a definitive answer, but, um, it's interesting that the Earl of Crawford was on a uh, House of Lords committee that was investigating uh, the sweating, you know, sweated trades. Um, this seems to be somewhat of a, you know, interesting coincidence, you know, given that there was a lot of focus on, you know, the Jews were being blamed essentially for unfair labor competition uh, because of sweating. And Isaac, Aaron's brother, is, you know, specifically referred to as a sweater. Um, now, I don't know if I could really say that the Earl of Crawford would have visited the East End, uh, but it's at least, you know, a sort of point of contact uh, in that, you know, he was on this commission in 1888 uh, that was investigating uh, sweated labor practices, essentially. Um, so... You know, it's at least a potential point of contact, I guess I would say. Am I, am I right? The, the Crawford letter is to Anderson, but am, am I right in thinking, is it dated? Um, no, it's undated. That Crawford letter has always intrigued me, and they, they always imply, a lot of the discussion seems to imply it refers to Druid, and I agree that, you know, there's big question marks over it. There were, there were some, especially with your geographical position, there was... Um, there were reports of a, an unnamed woman, a Canadian woman, who came over to London on a visit. And uh, when she went back to Canada, she was telling the story that she had spoken to an unnamed, highly placed official um, in, while she was in London, who told her that they knew who the Ripper was, and that he'd been betrayed—well, betrayed—that he'd been shopped by his sister, basically. Oh, I just wondered. Seen- I've never, never seen. Uh, no, I've never seen that. I'd be interested. That was reported in quite a. That was reported in quite a few Canadian. I'll see if I can. I'll dig it up and mail it to you. Yeah, that would be great. Now, um, as I had said, uh, this letter uh, from the Earl of Crawford is undated. It's uh, just to give it some little bit of background. It's written to Robert Anderson saying that he is uh, forwarding the information along the Earl of Crawford's forwarding the information along to Robert Anderson about this woman who uh, suspects um, her close relative and it, and it says that she is in great fear lest any suspicions sh- should be attached to her and place her and her family in peril now he goes on to say so uh, I'm placing this information for you so that you may form an opinion as to being worthwhile to investigate when Stephen found this letter it, it's not dated and it was apparently in some papers that spanned a couple decades 
But um, wouldn't you agree, Rob, that the information would only have been worthwhile to investigate if it was if this letter was written during the active investigation? Uh, I would assume so. It's it's obviously very unclear when when it was written. Uh, you know, if this is if this is Aaron's sister Matilda, who essentially informed the police uh, that she had suspicions that her brother was uh, the murderer, then you know it seems to me it, this could have happened as early as October 1888. Uh, the other likely time would be around the time of the identification. Uh, you know, I think that it's it's difficult to interpret, for example, this, uh, you know, this batty street lodger suspect, for want of a better term. But if it's Aaron, uh, this obviously predate, predates by a number of years um, the identification. So... Uh, why, for example, did the identification take place when it did, if he was a suspect that early? Uh, you know, but this really gets into the, gets into a, an area that we know nothing about, really, which is how Aaron first came to the attention of the police at all. It's quite possible that he was a suspect in October, uh, and then the police just had no um, real hard evidence against him. And so he just kind of became one, one of many suspects that they were looking at. Uh, you know, of course, there's no murders in October. Uh, and one of these articles actually says that the suspect actually knew he was being watched and he rarely goes out of the house at all uh, because he knew he was under surveillance. It's, it's possible that what happened is that Aaron was on a list of suspects uh, he may have even been considered a strong suspect, and you know, but the police really had no evidence against him. And then when he, you know, starts showing signs that he's insane, maybe he comes back into the attention of the police, and they, you know, take another look at him and decide that they're going to uh, see if they can identify him. You know, but that's really that's really just speculation on my part. What would be your speculation as to why Aaron apparently stopped killing years before he was committed? Well, one possible explanation is that, uh, you know, he stopped largely because he started to worry that he was, uh, you know, under surveillance by the police. Uh, you know, the, uh, this, this, these Batty Street Lodger articles arguably you could say this may have been Aaron but uh, Cox says that the suspect essentially you know they they learned about this suspect uh, after the murder of Mary Kelly and he kind of suggests that uh, you know it was because the police were conducting surveillance on him for three months as he says which is why the uh, you know why he stopped killing essentially uh, you know, I think I think another possible reason could be just that he deteriorated significantly in terms of his uh, sanity after that point. Um, you know, interestingly, Sager says that suspicion fell on a man who, without a doubt, was the murderer. And then he says, identification being possible, he could not be charged. And that, 
you know, essentially fits with uh, the the Swanson Anderson story that they they couldn't get an identification and he couldn't be charged. And Sager then says he was placed in a lunatic asylum and the series of atrocities came to an end. Now, you know, so you believe he was essentially under surveillance for two years? Well, you know, I I will say right right off the bat that I don't have all the answers, but um, you know, it, there's a, there's a large gap in our knowledge about Aaron Kosminski. Uh, it's possible he could have been committed to an you know, say a private asylum, for example. I wouldn't say he was. I wouldn't say the police watched him for you know two years. Because I I think it was just my my confusion. Like I was the the Swanson. You know, he was under surveillance from the identification, but now we're also saying he was prior to that under surveillance from the laundry incident. Yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of trying to make sense of these things, really. Uh, I, I can't really explain it. It's possible he was under surveillance on more than one occasion. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the police had a number of suspects under surveillance during you know, the time when the murders were taking place. So, you know, like I said, they may have tried to, you know, they may have been performing surveillance on Aaron as early as October, and it just never went anywhere. And they dropped it. Now, it has been brought up, and maybe Paul would like to talk about this as well, because I believe you've talked to medical experts in the field about the nature of schizophrenia. And if um, Kosminski was the ripper... Or if, if, or if he suffered from schizophrenia, um, I've read that it it would come come and go in waves, and it's also uh, aggravated by the use of alcohol. I mean, so there there are, from what we know, uh, if you guys could kind of explain from what what do we know about his condition after he's been put into the asylum and how that could jive with um, him if he was a schizophrenic, um, you know being out on violent and being the perpetrator of these murders while he was out on the street. As far as uh, my limited understanding in this area is concerned, uh, my understanding is that, if in inverted commas this will be, um, he he stayed, sa- the, the, the murdering helped him to stay sane. Obviously that's not sane by any sane standards, but uh, but at least he he didn't become a gibbering idiot. Once he would have been stopped murdering, but for whatever reason that may have been, be, be it that his family kept a, a much closer eye on him, whether he was uh, locked into a building at night time and, and prevented from going out, I've been told that um, the mental and physical decline then would have been very rapid. So that what we see uh, being uh, the descriptions and everything of, of, uh, of Aaron Kosminski in and after 1891 need not necessarily bear any resemblance to, to his mental and physical condition uh, as it would have been in 1888. So on that score, I, I must admit, I do tend, um, I do tend to doubt the, the idea that he was kept under surveillance um, or, or was a suspect um, uh, in 1888. I also I don't think just... that applies. Sorry. 
No, I just wanted to add uh, something about uh, the fact that Aaron's described as an imbecile. In Victorian times, uh, you know, imbecile was a term that was used. Uh, it was really just synonymous with mental patient, largely. You know, the actual Victorian definition of imbecile is somewhat different than the way we understand it today. It really means weakness of uh, body or mind. Uh, but, you know, at the time it was largely used synonymously with, you know, mental patient would be described as an imbecile. Um, Aaron's actually listed on a document that I don't have in front of me, um, and I don't know exactly what it is, but it's some sort of uh, listing of patients uh, in Leavesden Asylum, and there's a column where they can write if the person is an imbecile or a lunatic, uh, and Aaron is you know, listed as a lunatic. So, you know, I just bring that up because a lot of a lot of the perception of Aaron Kosminski is that he was just this kind of imbecile, you know, sort of roaming around the streets, picking up pieces of food. And, you know, it's, it's thought that that, that does not fit with uh, the way people see the Ripper. But I just think that the, you know, the perception of him as an imbecile is probably not correct. And in any case, uh, you know, as Paul said, his mental state in 1888, we really don't know what it would have been. Although, although you know, from asylum records, it appears that uh, he may have been exhibiting, you know, symptoms of insanity to some degree as early as 18, 1885. Now, when did the uh, dog, uh, the, the dog muzzling um, incident take place? That was uh, December 1889. Uh, you know, so he, he, he at least was in a state where he could, uh, you know, stand in court and test, you know, testify or answer questions. Paul had said that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, on in your interpretation, but you, he, he had said that uh, by murdering, by if if a person has uh, with the mental state of of Kosminski, um, committing the murders was was almost like a therapy was or you know was a form of release. Um, he does it. Paul said to to stay sane, and only after the murders stop does he no longer have that type of outlet. I guess, and then he would go downhill from there. That being said, where when do you believe the the murders stopped? Um, I, I haven't the remotest idea. Um, they would have stopped, obviously, prior to the murder of Francis Coles, uh, because uh, committal appears to have taken place before that murder uh, was committed. Um, but, so you could count in any of those others, but I, I, would, I would strongly suspect that probably the murders stopped with, uh, with Mary Kelly or, or just afterwards. And Rob, your opinion on it? I, I would agree with Paul. You know, I can't say when the murders would have stopped. Obviously, Alice McKenzie could have been uh, murdered by Jack the Ripper. I really don't know. Could I just ask, ask one question of you all on, on this issue? We discussed at the beginning, uh, you asked who uh, the witness may have been, and uh, Rob said uh, either Lavender or, uh, or Schwartz, and that he went for or inclined towards uh, Lewenda, as do quite a lot of people. One thing 
that um, that uh, gets me, which I, which I never see anybody respond to, is that Lavender was apparently uh, brought in to identify or try to identify Thomas Sadler in the uh, in, in the Coles case. Now. Given that Aaron Kosminski had been committed prior to the murderer, a murder of Francis Coles, and given that the eyewitness ident- positive eyewitness identification had occurred prior to him being committed, if the witness had been Lavender, then he couldn't have been used again in the case of um, of Sadler. Because he couldn't be, because you know, you can imagine that uh, any any defence counsel would make mincemeat of a of a guy who had positively identified a Polish Jew and then comes along and, and, and identifies uh, a, a Gentile sailor. So, what 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 is 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 all your take on that particular point? Because that would to, to me eliminate Lavender as the possible witness. It seems to me that, officially anyway, the identification failed because it seems clear that the the witness refused to testify. So I don't really see how, you know, it, it would well, be he refused argued. To, yeah. He refused to testify, but nevertheless, he he was called as a witness and, and, the, and the identification was, and it was a positive identification. Um, the police would have known that. Is it reasonable to assume that the police then went along to uh, to, to Lavender and said, "Oh, look, excuse me. I'm, I'm, I mean, I know you positively identified that that Jewish guy, um, but would you mind just popping along and seeing if uh, if maybe you made a mistake then?" And um, and this guy is is the one. I mean, all that would happen if if the witness then happened to just to let slip to anybody else that he'd already positively identified one suspect when he was called upon to try and. Change his mind and posit uh, and identify somebody else. I mean, it would, just, it would have been a complete screw up of the entire thing. And no matter how, even if it proved that his original positive identification of Kosminski was completely wrong, absolutely wrong, and and that the the identification of Sadler was totally right, it would the the Sadler's counsel would still make mincemeat of the of the whole testimony anyway, and it would just just. Sadler would probably have have walked free even if he'd been positively identified. You're exactly right, right Paul. That's a, a really excellent point that it pretty much puts the kibosh on the idea that it could have been Lavender. Uh, again, I'm one of those people who doubts that the whole seaside story is even accurate. But presuming that there is some truth to it, you're right. That would Because it would have been – any of his testimony from that point on would have been colored and he never would have been called – in the Sadler case, you're quite right. Yeah, I just want to. I just want to make a sort of a final point here, which is that, um, you know, I've done you know research into Aaron Kosminski, um, and you know, thought about you know these various documents and sources, tried to interpret them as best I can. Uh, you know, and it's very it's very difficult really to interpret them, and I I would not go on the record as saying that I think Aaron Kosminski was a suspect in October 1888 or that he necessarily, you know, is the person talked about by Harry Cox or, you know, is the Batty Street Lodger suspect, for example. But, you know, I'm just sort of pointing out these possibilities. 
And, you know, there are problems with them, obviously. Uh, you know, and it's, you know, it's difficult to uh, make heads or tails of a lot of this stuff, really, but... Um, they are very, very exciting points that you made. That you've you've made because obviously we've sat and discussed this many a time, and I think it's uh, it's it is all speculative theorizing. But at the moment, with such little information to go on, that's that's the only thing that's left to us. And I and I think uh, uh, bits of a it's it's like putting the pieces of a jigsaw together in what you're doing and what you have done. And um, you're, you're putting a picture together. Whether it ultimately turns out to be the right picture or not is... is uh, it's probably something that yes. you have to satisfy yourself in, and you just accept you won't satisfy everybody as to the, that picture. Yeah. yeah I, I, mean, it's, I often feel like I'm trying to fit pieces of a jigsaw puzzle with other pieces, and I don't even know if they're pieces of the same puzzle. But they might be. <laughs> I think uh, I'd just like to make make one small point to you, Ali, um, with regard to the to the Swanson marginalia. Oh, uh, <laughs> even if you take the Swanson marginalia completely out of the picture, you're still left with the McNaughton memoranda naming a suspect called Kosminski. And if that person is Aaron Kosminski, which it uh, Looks highly likely that it that, that there can't, can be nobody else because he's the only one that we found in asylum records at the moment. Um, you still got to ask yourself: Well, how did he ever get to be come to the attention of the police in the first place? How how did suspicion ever fall on him? Especially when you'd stop and think that, despite what McNaughton says about any one of these being more likely than Cutbush to have been the murderer. The fact is, is that the list included Druitt, who was McNaughton's own favourite, and Kosminski, who appears to have been Anderson's. And I don't think there is much doubt that Anderson's suspect was Kosminski, because um, the utterly unmentionable vices uh, correspond so closely with solitary vices and, and uh, in, in McNaughton that, um, that the two details fit. So you've still got Kosminski. It's just those details in the Swanson marginalia that are so difficult to explain. And, of course, that's why people then begin to question this, this document. But by and large, uh, there's no real reason to question the document. And, and none of us, uh, apart from maybe Stuart, has actually seen this report that's been produced by Scotland Yard when the, when the marginalia was given uh, to, to, the, to the Black Museum. Um, and I'd be very interested to, to ascertain how the handwriting expert was able to determine that the handwriting had been done, apparently done, uh, some years apart. And my understanding is that handwriting can change according to the, the position you're sitting in, uh, what surface you're writing on. So if, if, if Swanson was sitting in a wicker chair out in his garden making some notes and gets called in for tea and then finishes off the notes a bit later on, uh, perhaps using a different pencil and sitting in a different room. How, how did this handwriting expert, how was he able to determine that that was written, uh, not that way, but, but was in fact written years apart? So as far as we're aware, the marginalia, there doesn't seem to be much of a reason for, for doubting it, it being genuine. Um, what the hell it's all about is, of course, a, a totally different uh, 
different ball game, but we've still got to face up to the fact that we've got a suspect called Kuzminski. Mm. And we just don't know why suspicion ever fell on him. I mean, presumably, I mean, we're talking about, maybe talking about 1891. Here is a time, a couple of years after the murders, they're not going to be that interested in picking somebody up just because he's a, 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 a lunatic wandering the streets, muttering to himself and pulling um, food out of the gutters. They, they might have... Had, they might have done that in 1888 at the height of the crimes, but surely not 1891. There's got to have been something a little bit more about it. Uh, and, and also to have pulled in a witness. And I, I can only assume that they would have gone to all that kind of trouble if there was some sort of other evidence, because Anderson, Anderson in, in, in emphasising the witness, clearly believed that they would be able to proceed with a case against Kuzminski had it not been for that witness. So that was the icing on the cake. There must have been other evidence because, as the papers at the time observed, um, not with regard to to uh, Kuzminski, of course, but uh, an eyewitness identification so long after the event would be next to worthless. If the papers knew that, the police would have known it, and so there must have been some. There must have been other evidence. Mm. Um, and in Anders, if and the other point to, to to make is that for whatever one one thinks about Anderson, and he's a an ex- hugely complex character to try and work out. Uh, mm. He was the head of the CID at the time of the crimes. Therefore, he would have known the evidence against all the major suspects. And if he thought the evidence against Kuzminski was the best, then uh, that really puts Kuzminski at the top of, top of the totem pole as a suspect. Um, but it also re- reflects on the other suspects. Because if the evidence against Kuzminski, no matter how poor that evidence looks to be to our eyes, was in his view superior to the evidence against people like Tumblety and uh, Ostrog or... or Possibly drew it, or any of these others, um, then that says a lot about the about about the standard of evidence that they've got against anybody. So, it's it's trying to work out the importance of of Kuzminski within the, within the the suspect argument is is quite significant because it impacts on everybody else. Mm. I think I think that the uh, you know that's supported by the McNaughton memoranda which says that you know he he refers to things like um you know Kosminski had homicidal tendencies and a great hatred of women yeah uh you know i mean i think it's pretty clear that they would have they must have gotten that from somewhere they probably got it from someone who you know to- told them that you know he was homicidal essentially might have been his sister I mean, clearly yeah. the the police must have known much more about Aaron Kosminski than we know today. Why are we presuming that just because he wrote that, he must have had evidence of it? That's sort of reading into it what you want to be there. McNaughton wrote, because and because he's a police officer, we must give credence that because he wrote that Kosminski was homicidal with a great hatred of women, he must have been. No, it's when because... there's no documentation, I mean, yes, we have the, the knife incident with his sister. Well, 
I, I'll just come out and say that when I got really pissed off with my brother one time, I flashed enough in his direction because I happened to be holding it in my hand. So I'm not really homicidal with a great hatred towards men, but I will admit that in my past, I have um, occasionally gotten a little hot-blooded. Now, just because I happen to have a knife in my hand, I'm not saying I went chasing him throughout the house screaming. But, um, you know, so when you have someone who already has a mental illness and they have a knife, it gets dramatically exaggerated. So, you know, I just... I lived with too many cops to say that just because McNaughton said it, he must have had evidence that it was true. And that's just where I come from when reading, you know, these comments that we don't have any evidence. Yes, we can, we, we're, we're having to take absolutely everything with a grain of salt because we just have to go with what we believe is right and come up with our own opinions. But um, I just, I can't say, oh, well, McNaughton said it, so... He must have had evidence that it was true. Well, I'm not saying that. Be- I'm not saying that because McNaughton said it, it's true. I'm saying that it suggests that the police would have known more about Kosminski than we know now. Whether what McNaughton said specifically is correct, I don't know. But I don't think we can assume that it's incorrect necessarily. And of course, we we are de- what we're dealing with here is not. We're not saying that it has to be true because McNaughton was a policeman. What we're saying is that. This is what a primary source tells us. Now, uh, but he also said Drew it was a doctor. I see. That's the thing. It's like we cherry pick which ones we're going to say he had more evidence here. Well, no, you you you, you actually look at the at the at the material. Now, in the case of uh, everything that McNaughton said about Drewitt, strangely enough, there is no particular evidence to suggest that McNaughton actually saw anything other than the original police report by P.C. Moulson, because there is nothing in what McNaughton tells us that wasn't in that report, and it was that report that would have contained numerous errors, uh, and that we know did contain numerous errors. McNaughton seems to have been completely unaware of even the inquest reports where it was made perfectly plain that Druitt was a barrister. So it's not so much... Isn't the number of the... Sorry, isn't the nub of the Druid this this um, now lost private info from the family? Yeah, exactly. It's it's something that uh, that either the police received or that McNaughton himself personally mm. received, um, which convinced him that Druid was the murderer. He then presumably looked back in the files because the informa- obviously the information that he has about Druid was wrong. Yeah. So. Um, if if the information came from the well, it didn't come from the family. He said that he, he actually says from private information. I have no doubt that uh, mm. the family believe him to have been uh, Jack the Ripper, well, or the murderer. Um, yeah. Well, of course, if the information had come from the family, then he would have been left in absolutely no doubt whatsoever that that's what exactly. they believed. But um, but what it basically amounts to is, is that what we're talking about here are, 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 are basically historical sources. And we have to treat those historical sources in the same way uh, and with the same degree of understanding and sensitivity as we would be treating any historical source. So it's not a matter of accepting that what the source tells us has to be 100% true. Um, that is not the case at all. But in, in the case of McNaughton, we can look at the things that he has said. We can look at, at, at take his memoirs, for example, 
uh, and look at the stories that he tells there and see to what extent they conform with information that we've derived from other sources. The problem that arises is that when people, uh, for some reason or another, try to analyze these, uh, these stories because basically they don't like them or because they're, they're trying to, to resolve uh, problems that are within the document itself, then all sorts of things start coming up. Well, we don't want to trust this, we don't want to do that, we can't do this. Uh, and that sort of thing really is as wrong as blindly accepting what all these sources tell us. Mm. Um, it's perfectly true. Swanson, Anderson and everybody else may, times they were writing, have desperately wanted to suggest that they, that they knew who the murderer was. Um, we don't know whether they did or whether they didn't. We don't I even just, know. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, in regards to the, I, the the violent tendencies, to me is is the the real stopper to my um, uh, accepting uh, the you know the McNaughton. Uh, completely lost my train of thought. I was going somewhere brilliant. I, um, but uh, oh, the records, sorry, the, the 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 hospitalization records, and I just you know we we don't have wealth of material about. Um, Kismensky in regards to his violent tendencies, and I would think that given there is a uh, a record of his his um, inc- uh, not his incarceration, but his whatever you call it when they put him away, um, that you know there would be if that were an actual um, an actual truth about this person that there would be more there that we could say oh you know here we go. We've got that proof to to support what McNaughton was saying. It's one of those th- those things again, though, that we 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 continually face problems with. You you can argue both sides of the fence quite easily, and because we we actually don't have any any information, and we can postulate all sorts of things. For example, let us say that Aaron Kosminski has been taken away for identification, then he's been returned to his brother's house, where he's where the city CID keep him under constant surveillance. Uh, he, in whatever fashion he is able to, uh, conveys to his family that what has happened to him, and they think, oh my God, if this, this comes out, we're going to be in deep, deep trouble. Uh, and they decide they're going to get him committed to an asylum. So they cart him off to, uh, to the doctor. They tell some sort of cock and bull story that may or may not be true about him wielding a knife and threatening the life of his sister and all the rest of it. They're not really going to go to the doctor, are they, and say, oh, this guy, our brother, was, was Jack the Ripper, and, and he's obviously Gaga, um, and whack him away. If, the, if, if Kosminski was insane, what they had to demonstrate uh, was actually that he was dangerous. Mm. And so they, they give any old story that conveys the fact that they're, they're seriously worried about how safe he would be to live amongst them. Yeah. That's one way of, uh, of explaining the lack of detailed uh, material in the committal papers that suggests that he was a homicidal, woman-hating maniac. Mm. And, of course, once he's in the asylum, uh, if his mental health has deteriorated to to, to the degree that... that uh, it obviously did because it's highly unlikely that the gibbering wreck that he was in 1891 would have persuaded any 
prostitute to go off with him, no matter how desperate or drunk they were, because they wouldn't have considered that he was in any fit state to have the forms that was necessary for mm. completing the, the act. So, mm. um, if if there if if he if if there's any truth to this story, then it's painfully obvious that he 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 must have been more sane than than uh, the, in 1888 than he was in 1891, mm. um, and. Uh, you know, you, you can work out, or, but by that time, his behaviour in in the asylum uh, may have borne no uh, reflection of what he was like in 1888. And on top of which, the asylum records are uh, twice yearly reports about, largely about his physical condition. They v- very, very, very rarely, if ever, refer to. Um, his mental condition at all uh, i mean they they refer to occasionally to hearing sounds and uh voices and and having halluc- visual hallucinations mm. but they don't tell us what he what they what how they manifested themselves what he saw or thought he saw what the voices were telling him i mean he could have been standing on a table proclaiming that he was jack the ripper in yiddish day in day but, out and i very much don't but also would have... i mean the, the the only window we have i mean if if he were that uh manifestly a gibbering lunatic. I mean, the only window we have and the only sort of reported speech and conduct is the dog-muzzling incident at the end of 1889. Yeah. Now, if he'd appeared in, in open court, uh, he was almost um, sort of cheeky. I mean, he basically said to that he was fined and he said, well, I can't pay it because it's a Jewish holiday. Well, I, th- um, I, th- I think Rob might be able to say that, that of the different reports he's got, I think there's some question about whether he was uh, actually speaking or oh, right. whether okay. uh, his brother was... Well, what I mean is that if, he, if, if he were a manifest lunatic, I'm, you know, I think it would probably have been picked up then. I mean, well, that, I th- because I th- that's pretty close to yes. the time he was committed. Well, that's why I think one of the biggest problems <laughs> with assuming that Aaron Kosminski... Uh, was uh, Jack the Ripper or or perhaps was Anderson's suspect or the person that they're all talking about it is, as I mentioned earlier, this fact that by 1891, one, when we assume the identification uh, took place or at the end of 1890, and uh, at that stage, when committal happened, Aaron Kosminski appears to have been manifestly insane. That does not rest well with Swanson's claim, uh, and indeed Anderson's, that uh, that the suspect would have uh, stood trial had it not been for, um, for for the witness refusing to give evidence. Now, um, because he would have never got to trial, it does. The only explanation for that at all is that what the police hoped for was that, which I think they would possibly have had to have done it, is that Aaron Kosminski would have stood charged in the magistrate's court and it would have been in there that medical evidence would have been brought forward to show that he was insane and then he would have been committed, as was David Cohen, if if you remember. Now, I, I think that's possibly the only way the police would have got the guy into court or into any kind of court and been in a position to publicly announce effectively, we've caught Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, Paul, and, of course... Paul, 
Yeah. Can I just ask, uh, just want to jump in. Do you have any explanation for the 16-year gap in Aaron's asylum record uh, at Leavesden? I mean, he basically doesn't show up in Leavesden records at all, I think, until 1910. None at all. I, I would just assume that those records have uh, have disappeared along with... There must have been a, a, a massive amount of medical records there, apart from those twice-yearly reports. There's got to have been documents relating to to all manner of uh, of things about him. And of course, all that stuff's just just uh, just disappeared with, with time. Right. I can only assume that they've they've gone somewhere else. They're they're either being destroyed or they're mixed up with somebody else, somebody else's case papers or. You know, the chances of us ever finding them are fairly remote. Right. If they're still can I, there. Can I make one point briefly, which I think I don't think sometimes is emphasised enough, is that when we're looking at documents, um, obviously we look at the content. I mean, that goes without saying. But I think also you have to bear in mind, which may have some bearing on it, as to the the motive and the intention, the intended use of the document. What I'm oh, getting yeah. at, what I'm getting at is in. in Anderson's memoirs were obviously patently meant for public consumption. And so, therefore, I can understand to some extent maybe over-egging the pudding or even being a bit titillating, you know, hinting, you know, I know who it is, but I can't say, and this, that, and the other. But I, mm. the, the McNaughton paper, I think, is a very different kettle of fish in that it was a, a confidential internal memorandum. So, therefore, the purported facts that he mentions presumably it was only meant for internal police consumption and so therefore anybody who read it whoever the intended audience was would have been in a position to actually go off and, and check what he was asserting because they would have had internal access to whatever the then surviving records were mm. so I'm, I'm always a little bit mystified as to who the McNaughton memorandum was actually meant for. I mean, who, who was his intended audience? He was, he was refuting a series of reports about Cutbush, but I'm, I'm, I'm never entirely clear in my own mind as to who he actually aimed that memorandum at. I mean, it's not actually addressed think, to any... I don't think anybody is, if, in, if indeed it was intended for, for any specific person. I mean, one suggestion that is that it was intended for the home office... Uh, uh, providing a, a little bit of background detail, should the Home Secretary have had to stand up in uh, in court. It's interesting, I think, that between the two versions, uh, between the Abba Conway version and the, uh, the, the official version, mm. McNaughton virtually takes out every bit of, of personal theorizing. Um, and uh, we get we get the official version is a fairly bald report. It's very odd, though. Um, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't actually address uh, very many of the issues that that you would expect anybody refuting Cutbush to to have raised. But of course, um, it's probably just giving a little bit of background detail to to the ripper case uh, um, and, and was presumably never never called upon because otherwise it wouldn't have still been in the Met files unless that's a copy of, the, of an original that was sent off somewhere else mm. in which case you'd expect it to be in the, in the home to, to, to come across it in the home office files but yeah. who knows maybe as uh, people go through a file somewhere for the Department of Public Prosecutions or something they'll, they'll come up 
come against discover it I mean it's really you know relating to what Ali said about you know the how much or how little was was known at the time it always always reminds me unfortunately and I it might be a Bushism I can't remember but there was that famous speech about known unknowns and unknown unknowns and all that Hmm. um because I mean, I, but I think you can, t- to some extent, apply that. For, you know, for example, uh, you know, a known unknown is the file mentioned by a little child on Tumblety, which is completely gone. Mm. Um, but you know, there, there is no mention of a file on Kosminski. But there again, in the you know the few scraps we have left, that that's not entirely surprising. No, exactly. Uh, and um, of course, uh, the, the the Swanson marginalia again w- would appear to have been for. For uh, Swanson's personal consumption. Incidentally, one other problem about, about the, the marginalia that that's a little odd um, is that if it was forged, if it or if in in whole or in part it it, it uh, forged sounds wrong, but you, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, if it was in in part or in whole forged. Uh, the question is when, because um, the odd thing is is that well, certainly when I was writing uh, the uncensored facts in eighty seven eighty eight, the widespread belief at that time was that Anderson's suspect was John Pizer and that the witness was Emmanuel Delbas Violinia, mm. and that <clears throat> and a very 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 pers- that, that was believed because of this very very persuasive argument that was put forward by Don Rumbelow in his book. Now it was only when uh, Martin realised that uh, that um, Kosminski fitted uh, Anderson's suspect, and similarly when I, I I equally before Martin's book was published had come to the same conclusion. Uh, largely on the basis of those unmentionable vices and solitary vices mm. sort of uh, being one and the same thing. I'd also at that stage uh, learned that uh, that Pizer had never been committed to an asylum, so that tended to write him out altogether. Don didn't know that. Now, anybody forging the, the marginalia um, prior to late 1987, when Martin's book was published, if following the leading uh, authority on, on the Ripper case would have surely have, have, have said that the suspect was Pizer. Why, why would he have said that it was, it was Kosminski? That would have been a long shot. Mm. So the, and the only time that then the idea of it being Kosminski would have, would have really worked would have been after Martin's book was published. But, of course, Martin went and poo-pooed the whole idea that it was Kosminski uh, in favor of Cohen. So, it, the idea that this book, that, that this n- name or something was added in, in the late late eighties, just doesn't seem to, or it doesn't add up. But it it's, creates all sorts of problems in itself as well. Mm. So yes, you do have to look very closely at at the documents and and why they were written and who they were written for and what their ultimate purpose was. The marginalia, as I said appears to have been written for uh, Swanson's own personal consumption. Mm. Uh, it wasn't even being written for somebody else in the way that the McNaughton Memoranda was. 
Well, um, this has been quite a long podcast and um, fraught with technical difficulties, too, that I'll have to spend all day tomorrow trying to clean up. Uh, is there any last uh, statements we want to make on Kosminski as a suspect? Uh, only that I, I walked past his brother's house today. Oh, you did? Mm. Where was that, on Greenfield okay. Street? No, in Ramsgate. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Uh, they ran two boarding houses. I'm, go- right. I'm, going out to photo- I'm going out to photograph them tomorrow. Both, oh, that's actually, great. Both are still there. One, one of them actually is up for sale. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, it's a uh, five-story. It used to be, uh, it was called the uh, Victoria House. There's a photograph right. of it. And this was Isaac um, and his wife, who right. um, late 1890s. They're in the local yeah. directory. They're in the local directory by 1899. Um, and they then they moved to a, um, a square here called Albion Place, and the house is still there. Right. So if anybody's anybody's got a spare 405,000 pounds, they can have it. Oh, let's get two. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the other one's already taken. Oh, right. Well, I don't, I'll, I just I'll don't be, want the one then. I mean, I don't. No, no. We, we want the set. It's a beautiful house. Yes, absolutely. House. <laughs> it's a sort of five-story Regency house, which oh, has all been, all been gentrified. It was run as... Um, and the interesting thing is in the local um, directory where they're, they're listed... Um, there's a little bit of blurb because normally it's just it's just you know it says um, Abraham's Isaac you know a, a boarding apartments they're down as, but mm. uh, one of them there's a little bit of blurb and it specifically says it lists all of the amenities. Um, they have music room with piano and all this, but it it se- specifically says that they are um, sort of for Orthodox Jews only. They say it's an Orthodox Jewish household. All right, hmm. interesting. We'll, yeah. you'll have to, as you're in Ramsgate, it seems stupid. We'll have to do do lunch sometime. Yes, yes. I have to I have to try and definitely make this effort. And well, what I'll do is I'll 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 mail, I'll, I'll mail you my phone number and give give yeah. a bell. Yeah, that'd be good. And then yeah. either you come over to me and and have lunch in Maidstone, or I'll take you to the pub for lunch. Okay. Although my t- my daughter t- does t- the cooking, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be better than mine. Well, I, that's why I think we might go and do lunch in town rather. Than, <laughs> no, that's unfair. <laughs> she's, she's very, she's very good. She's very good. Well, I'll, I'll, pub- I'll publish. I'll put those um, photos on the um, message board sometime this week, anyway, so folks can see what what state they're in. But both buildings are still there. Oh, that's great. Um, I just had one last comment, which is that um, you know I kind of stated this before, but I just wanted to say again that. Uh, a huge, huge amount of the research into Kosminski has been done by Chris Phillips. And, uh, you know, he's really done m- much more research than I have. Uh, he he doesn't actually tend to agree, I think, with a lot of my own personal, uh, you know, theories and speculations and things like that. But, uh, you know, to a large extent, uh, you know, he's he's responsible for, uh, you know, a huge amount of research on this. He's just done a great job and so I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Always give credit That's where credit is due. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'd well, like to point out yet again that uh, that I am not 
necessarily a Kosminskyite. I, I don't actually think that Kosminsky was necessarily Jack the Ripper. I, I think, if anything, um, that if he uh, was indeed, if the witness was indeed Schwartz, then uh, then if anything, Kosminsky maybe murdered Elizabeth Stride. And of course, whether Elizabeth Stride was uh, was a victim of Jack the Ripper or not is hugely open to question. And that was RipperCast, episode 28, Kosminski Was the Suspect. I want to thank everybody for joining me today. Again, that was Paul Begg from Maidstone, Kent in the UK, Rob House from Boston, Massachusetts, Robert McLaughlin had technical difficulties, so he wasn't on but just at the very beginning of the show, and he was coming to us from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Chris Scott was in Ramsgate, Kent in the UK, Allie Ryder was in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I'm Jonathan Mangus from Topeka, Kansas. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, available via the iTunes Music Store, keyword Jack the Ripper, in their podcast section, or at our website, www.rippernet.com. If you have any questions or comments for myself or any of our guests or co-hosts, feel free to email the show at rippernet at mac.com. And I do want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll see you next week.